Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm Alexander Bolova, Production Lead at GovCIO Media and Research, and today we have a special bonus episode featuring our May 9th Gov Focus, Federal Health Tech Leaders Combat AI Bias. Now, you may be asking yourself, Alex, what is a Gov Focus? Great question. A Gov Focus is a virtual video panel that brings together government and industry tech leaders to discuss solutions to many of the challenges facing government today. These in-depth conversations are typically available as videos on our website, but for today's episode, we're sharing a recent favorite. If you're interested in watching the full video and exploring our archive, please visit governmentciomedia.com slash govfocus. And now, enjoy our GovFocus on combating AI bias, featuring Gil Alturovitz, Director of NIE at VA, and Dr. Samir Antani, Principal Investigator, National Library of Medicine at NIH. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this Gov Focus on combating AI bias in healthcare. I'm Sarah Seibert, senior researcher with GovCIO Media and Research, and I'll be moderating this discussion. With me, we have Gil Alterovitz, director of the Department of Veterans Affairs, National Artificial Intelligence Institute, and Samir Antani, principal investigator at the National Library of Medicine. Thank you both for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so to start our conversation, could you provide a brief overview of your position and how you work with AI? Samir, would you like to start? Sure, thanks. So I'm a principal investigator at the National Library of Medicine uh, at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and what that merely means is I'm a scientist, and I have been so for about two decades now. Um, I have been a career uh, uh, scientist at the NLM, looking on at various aspects of understanding visual as an image content with medical images uh, from the perspective of uh, retrieval and more lately with terms of uh, understanding the content as it relates to diseases. Uh, in these images, uh, and that translates to applying machine learning algorithms and AI algorithms for detecting these. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to learning more. And Gil, what's your background? Uh, certainly. So um, right now I'm over here as the director of the National Artificial Intelligence Institute, which um, is uh, seeking to build that AI capacity and enable uh, research and development and uh, translating that into uh, the health and, and well-being of our veterans, right? Um, that's uh, our central mission. And uh, to do that, we're working on in a number of areas, uh, whether it be to enable uh, the people to do uh, that work, the um, the right policies, the right um, the right partnerships, uh, the right pilots and and related projects uh, to uh, move forward in that area. Yeah, that's really cool, and I've loved tracking your work. Uh, so, how do you each define bias, especially when we're talking about bias in healthcare? Samir, would you like to start? So, bias um, as it relates to artificial intelligence algorithms uh, uh, is the the notion that the 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 decisions or the predictions made by these methods are favoring one group, uh, whether fairly or unfairly. Uh, rather than giving a balanced decision uh, 
that is more cognizant of the problem at hand and not so much uh, affected that, by the training so, data that went into uh, okay. the algorithm design um, itself or the model itself. So let's right. go back here. Okay, so, so thanks so much like for that on? question on bias. I think I'd agree with Samir on, on that. I, I, I just also want to add that there's also kind of a, an area that may be broader than um, and broader than looking at demographic balance and data representativeness. And uh, we often also look at the NIST definition and to look at other areas such as so we can have systemic bias, we can have computational statistical biases and hu human cognitive biases um, where uh, that may relate to how an individual or group may perceive an AI system and, and that information uh, when they're making a decision or when they're filling in missing information and, and, and how uh, humans really think about uh, how these AI systems work, how they function and, and their overall role and their purpose. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. and. Samir, you alluded to some of your work in your intro, but I'd be interested in learning more about how you're using AI to identify and combat diseases and health risks. Well, certainly. So what I what I listed off uh, in the in the intro was I think of the object of my um, research interest as the medical image or the medical video, uh, depending on the modality that is being used for detecting disease. It could be echocardiography videos, for example. That's one interesting area that we have where we are tracking cardiac myopathy for sickle cell disease patients. Uh, and uh, we are applying machine learning to actually detect the right atrial pressure automatically and make it consistent with uh, human observations, therefore bringing in as a degree of standardization across all these automated predictions. A similar work is being done with oral cancer. Uh, we also have uh, 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 detecting uh, tuberculosis in HIV positive and HIV negative individuals, both adults and children. The children tends to be a little harder problem to solve. Uh, and uh, a litany of other diseases. Uh, there's some published work with, uh, for, for working with many years with the NCI on, uh, on cervical cancer for women, uh, detecting it reliably and, uh, and observing that different devices, even in fact, uh, also produce a um, a undesirable bias effect where the algorithm becomes more sensitive to some devices than others in making a robust and reliable prediction. Right, that's really interesting. And uh, a key word that popped out to me was that standardization uh, to make sure you're combating bias. And I know over the past few years, there have been several executive orders and policies that have come about outlining how AI should be developed, focusing on trustworthiness and equity. So, Gil, could you discuss how policy has changed or evolved as AI is becoming increasingly more integrated into the healthcare landscape? Yes, I think there have been a, a number of areas that really have uh, moved forward in this uh, AI space. So, uh, you know, you can always uh, go back more, but, you know, if we go back, uh, you know, the last, uh, you know, a little over five years ago, then you, you go to um, the national, uh, the first national AI research and development uh, strategic plan that was released around uh 2016 ish um and uh that was looking at these overall an overall strategy with a number of principles there that continued to develop right so things often start in research and development and then 
they uh, then kind of pervade through other areas, right? So after that, we saw an executive order on promoting the use of trustworthy AI in the uh, federal government um, as a whole. Um, we also saw promoting uh, and maintaining uh, American um, AI work. Uh, that was another executive order uh, that, that came out. So we had 13960, 13859 um, that uh, focused on enabling uh, data sets um, originally around research and development, but later also uh, so that they could be used uh, by industry and by others um, from uh, different uh, types of data sets. Um, and so that really helps set the foundation, right? When you have these trustworthy AI principles, which also set up uh, that executive order, also set up the uh, responsible, um, the uh, AI officials to work together um, on these uh, different areas and to ensure that these principles are, are going forward. Um, and uh, another afterwards, uh, you know, as we see these principles, then there's also a question of um, are there more items to focus on and how do you implement them? So um, there have been uh, new uh, things that came out just this past year, uh, for example, the White House AI Bill of Rights, which really uh, provided this uh, blueprint um, to look at uh, and, and principles around how do you have equitable and ethical use of automated systems, which uh, can include those with AI. Um, and then just recently, just about a month or so ago, we saw an executive order 14091, um, which was around furthering, uh, further advancing racial equity and supporting for underserved communities through uh, the federal government. And, and that included this uh, co-equal principle um, around uh, promoting and ensuring uh, equity as well. And then we've seen agencies coming out with things, right? The uh, VA's had its uh, different frameworks. Uh, NIST came out with the AI risk management framework. We just saw that also a couple months ago, which helped um, helps uh, guide uh, everyone around uh, doing a risk-based guidance for designing, implementing, and assessing these AI systems. So there's been a lot of work. Uh, and I think it's um, interesting how it kind of started in this sort of R&D area, and then it kind of migrated to government, to enabling government and others to do that by looking at opening up these data sets, and then migrating toward defining principles, and then ensuring uh, detailed implementation of those principles, including around uh, ethics and equity. Right, it's been really exciting to watch that boom. I think uh, you joined me on HealthCast at the end of 2022 and you're like, stay tuned for 2023. It's going to be a huge year for AI and you have not let me down on that. <laughs> so Samir, with all of these policies that are coming about uh, and this push to create more trustworthy AI, how are you in your work developing algorithms and advancing deep learning techniques to recognize health risk predictors? So I'd like to... Um break that question down a little. Yeah. Uh, one aspect is that we look at, from an um, algorithmic advancement standpoint, given a data set that is acquired um, in a clinic, for example, or a hospital system or uh, or different parts of the world uh, at the uh, uh, for whatever sources that might be, um, you have less control on how the data was acquired. So uh, we, on one aspect, we work with advancing the technology itself, uh, better networks that are more uh, exploratory about different characteristics of the data. And the other is to study the characteristics of the data themselves. How much 
data do we have? How is it distributed? What is the variety in terms of populations, in terms of disease expression, in terms of devices that were used for acquiring these data? in terms of uh, the protocols, the clinical protocols that vary uh, uh, from region to region for various reasons, uh, how much do they affect the kinds of data that you're looking at, and inherently the data quality itself. All of these factors are playing some role, even if you have the kind of data that covers the aspect of fairness in terms of uh, the different ethnicities, for example, or different geographical region, regions and, and such, you still have to pay attention to these uh, these details. And so my work in addition to advancing uh, uh, medical AI is also looking at, uh, at mechanisms to detect these uh, aspects and, uh, and figure and also discover or develop means of how can we uh, adjust and adapt to the data that we have by either synthesizing new data or, um, or in other uh, in other ways, as it's called, as uh, pre-processing the data so that you have a balanced data set that's been given to the AI for learning the characteristics of these these various diseases. Right, that's really interesting, and uh, that leads perfectly into my next question. Uh, so, Gil, how are you improving data management at uh, your unit to have, in turn, more accurate AI? And Samir, if there's anything you'd like to add uh, after Gil, feel free. Yeah. So, yeah, data management—it's—it's it's really core to not only AI, but really any kind of um, inference and, and uh, predictive uh, analytics. And so, um, you know, in that it is both used to build the model. And if you kind of think about it, a model is a, uh, essentially almost like a compressed type of data in a sense as well. So when you're ever you're managing the models themselves. And so we have a couple different um, things going on at the, at the VA. If you think about um, it, they're really kind of two things to think about. How do you um, how do you govern that data, right? And there is a data governance console. Uh, uh, we're, we're a member of that. There, and it goes across offices. Um, it is uh, uh, something that brings together a number of different offices uh, at the VA. Um, there is a, a structure kind of a, uh, with a number of different sub consoles under that. Um, there's also uh, different work groups, such as a data analytics work group, where we can learn from each other uh, around different um, items in this area. Um, and so that's kind of one, one avenue. The other is uh, thinking about and, and kind of uh, building and enabling uh, these different uh, structures in a way that can be used by the different uh, parties, right? And so uh, thinking about a um, and leveraging kind of this single um, veteran data object um, for, for planning, for doing analytics, uh, that's one of the things that's uh, being looked at um, at the VA as well. Um, and then collaborations, you know, learning from how uh, different offices are uh, working with data and other agencies, right? So there's some data, for example, that is within the VA, but then there, there's others that may be linked and that's in other agencies. So, um, for example, CMS, right? Like a lot of a lot of uh, veterans will actually get uh, their drug based uh, benefits through CMS, right? As they're older uh, through programs like that. And so there's ways to link 
that data and agreements uh, and understandings to be able to work with the data like that from uh, other agencies as well. So with that, I'll, I'll pass it on, I guess, to uh, Samir uh, as well. I guess CMS is part of HHS. I know you interact with them as well. No, I, th I think, Gil, you covered the topic fairly well. Um, uh, the only point I'd, I'd add is uh, in the in the aspect on the technology side, in the aspect of uh, detection of fairness in the algorithms, you have to be aware of which are the sensitive variables and which are those that are more resilient to change and will may not affect uh, the outcome as much. And, and balancing access, uh, management of data and the uh, the development of these algorithms uh, is like three three legs of a stool, if you will, and they all have to work in in balance. Right, that's a great way to put it. So, Samir, as you're developing these tech tools and innovative techniques to improve healthcare, how are you combating algorithmic bias to improve treatment and care for minority populations? Uh, so, oh, the way that's a, that's a tough one to answer from for a researcher, especially because we are so headstrong in trying to build the next better algorithm uh, with whatever data we have access to. That uh, very often the first uh, reaction is, "Let me build something," and then. Uh, uh, but the, the nature of the game also is to publish the work that we do. And so what we also don't want to be doing is um, uh, leading people to believe that your method is, has also been tested for fairness. And, and that's one aspect that we have become very sensitive to lately uh, in looking at these algorithms that are, uh, that are particularly getting tuned to certain features that are so strong, uh, but might be excluding uh, certain segments of society, perhaps. Uh, and and uh, so it, it is it is a tug in both directions. In one, one, on one side, there is very little annotated uh, medical data available, particularly in the imaging space that has been verified and validated by clinicians for developing these algorithms. On the other side, Given that you have sparse data or highly skewed data, you want to get as wide a geographic distribution as you can. And the two examples that we have in uh, in some of my research uh, is one that was I was talking alluding to cervical cancer earlier. Uh, Fifteen to eighteen sites worldwide are beginning to contribute their their studies toward this research. Therefore. Uh, therefore, diversifying the kinds of images that come into this to, to the research uh, platform, if you will, but also uh, pressing before us as researchers the issues that when you have a diverse data set and you train on one kind and you start testing on the other kind, uh, you have the issues of catastrophic forgetting, which is where it uh, starts uh, shifting the domain from one to the other, uh, etc. The other work that I'm doing with this uh, with pediatric TB in HIV positive and negative kids is that we are seeking data from 12 different sites worldwide, something analogous to the cervical cancer work. But uh, again, the emphasis there is to get as wide a distribution as possible that covers the various protocols and uh, expressions of disease. At the same time, we have to disambiguate now. Was it the protocol that caused the bias to appear, which it, which it will, and you have to control for that? Or was it the device that did it? Or was it the kind of disease that's prevalent in that region, part of the world that did it? And so as research, researchers, we are constantly in a loop, if you will, trying to solve these problems and, and, uh, and advancing science and healthcare. 
Right, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that VA recently established its AI Institutional Review Board and the AI Oversight Committee that adds that layer of governance. So, Gil, what is the intent of these groups and how do they evaluate the fairness and transparency of using AI tools within research and clinical operations? Right, right. As you mentioned, uh, really the the goal is to enable um, us to look at these different issues around around bias, around uh, these trustworthy AI principles uh, that are encoded in these executive orders, uh, 13960, 14091. Uh, as well as uh, overall principles in AI Bill of Rights and so forth. So what we do is actually um, have the these committees are uh, these institutional review boards, for example, they're already existing in these different um, medical centers. They are already reviewing different uh, research and development proposals. That's kind of like one side of the coin, so to speak. Um, and what we are have basically added is an AI module that gives them additional questions, additional things to think about as they are uh, starting to look at projects that now include that. Uh, so just as an example, transparency, you know, maybe an issue on the models and so forth. And so a couple of these projects were identified like that um, and then uh, and then uh, looked at to make it ensure that, that they were more transparent. Um, the other aspect, as I mentioned, that's kind of one side of the coin, that R&D, which is often uh, kind of at that leading edge, uh, also in terms of the looking at the policies and so forth. And then the second piece is uh, clinical uh, types of operations, right, at med- medical center, uh, which is part of the uh, oversight uh, boards that uh, we now have a pilot of that ongoing um, uh, in uh, Long Beach, uh, and there are other sites that have uh, expressed an interest to kind of learn from from that work, uh, to look at uh, when there are different um, items that are looking to be used in clinical operations before they actually get used. Um, and so there are some similarities and differences, right? They both look at projects before uh, essentially they are launched, I would say, right? So that's kind of good to uh, make sure that things are kind of um, known early. Uh, they both have mechanisms to ensure um, kind of set guardrails on the projects and so forth. And they're not the only, I just want to mention, they're not the only ones that we have, right? So as part of the data governance council, as part of the work uh, that we're doing, the there are a number of other projects other than clinical, other than uh, these R&D projects that are also looked at in, within the requirements that exist within EO 13960 to make sure that they're following these different principles and, and they and the, they get done from the design stage until the end. That's, I think, what's really important, that you don't kind of wait until it's already uh, running, but uh, as soon as possible when it's being designed to make sure that you look at any issues around bias and so forth from the beginning uh, so that you're using the right data sets before you actually are building the model. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I know VA is huge. I'm 400,000 employees. I think the last time I checked and a bunch of different medical centers. So as you're integrating AI, what role does workforce training play in ensuring that it's trustworthy and ethical? And what are some of VA's training programs that are supporting that? Yes, it's, uh, you know, I think workforce, if you think about it, that's a really great way to get at 
all the things that I mentioned from the beginning, right? Because if you have a trained workforce, they will know to ensure, uh, to look at for the, uh, to make sure that their data sets are not biased, to make sure that they're building the models in a correct way, right? In a way that doesn't introduce new um, issues as well uh, and to validate and so forth, right? And so um, there are a number of different workforce programs uh, and there are a number of ones that are being uh, looked at uh, in the future. Uh, there's, there's one we uh, recently uh, had a, an event for actually the uh, Aspire program, uh, which is, uh, you know, all services personnel readiness um, uh, engine, uh, which is basically um, a way to assess people's knowledge uh, and then um, and find the, the right custom path for them, given their current uh, knowledge and skills. And so uh, that is one program that um, we are piloting and we're working with a, a number of other agencies as well. We recently had an event around one of the, the pilot results from that. Um, and there, there are other ones as well. And so what we do is we learn from these and then we can see which uh, with, which path can really be uh, great to move forward. And that's another area where we actually learn, you know, there are other agencies. I think you mentioned the VA is very, is large, right? It's the largest civilian agency. Uh, we've um, been interacting with and learning from other agencies on, on what they're looking at because we're all facing some of the same issues uh, on the workforce, right? It's their issues around retention, recruitment, uh, talent development of people who are already in the VA who may be able to uh, do certain AI roles whereas where they were not originally trained for that, right? Um, so those are all different pieces sort of of the puzzle around workforce. Yeah, the Aspire program is super cool. I uh, love learning more about that. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, you're integrating lessons learned. I'd like to dive a little deeper into that. So for both of you, what are some of the lessons learned through your AI work and how are you applying them on important health problems in the current landscape? Samir, would you like to start? Sure. So uh, lessons learned. I, I think we are constantly learning lessons all the time. It's the number of times we fall and pick ourselves up, I think is the way better way to put it. But uh, we are very, become very sensitive to the very nature of uh, AI in medicine and AI in healthcare, uh, that, you, that it is inherently data-centric. Uh, it also is uh, affected by uh, the 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 use of uh, of medical technology that resulted in the capturing of the data itself, and so you're sort of dealing with both aspects and trying to disambiguate these uh, toward meeting the clinical goal. So so as uh, as a researcher, of course, we um, uh, like I said before, we are tr constantly trying to uh, improve. Uh, the algorithmic performance, the reliability uh, in the predictions, uh, avoiding flip-flopping, uh, sometimes bizarre flip-flopping where the same patient who we know has disease appears at a future visit and is classified or misclassified as being disease-free, which is um, unlikely and not true. So uh, detecting these instance-level failures and combining them with more uh, systemic uh, challenges that the model at large may be having and correcting at these both these levels is an important aspect of our work. Right, that makes a lot of sense. And Gil, in terms of lessons learned, how are you implementing those? Yes, I, I think when you have lessons learned, uh, I think it, 
what you basically do is, or what we've been looking at is, you know, kind of this iterative approach, right? So maybe the best way is, you know, to look at an example, right? So in, in COVID, you may have, for example, a predictive model, uh, and it may be perfectly suitable at that point in time in COVID, right? But as you have new variants over time, um, you may have model drip, right? And you, so you kind of need to keep updating the model. You need kind of this learning um, healthcare system. Um, and uh, there may also be differences in that, you know, uh, model maybe, or, you know, at some point uh, it, you see that, you know, in the early days, right, that it was uh, COVID was kind of moving different geographical regions, right? And so a model built in one place may not apply to another. Um, similarly, with um, models built outside the VA, would they work in the VA? That is a common one that we often uh, need to look at. Um, and so uh, being able to uh, have a a way to evaluate different models in different situations and then quickly um, leverage that knowledge to make an update. That is uh, something that I think we've seen uh, that's kind of in the model predicting building area. And then in, in the kind of the policy area, um, this is a fast moving field, right? As you said, 2023 is kind of becoming this year of AI in some sense. So it seems almost every day there's a new announcement of, of something. Um, and a lot of there are a lot of things, especially around that new generative AI space, right? And so when you have a new area, there's sometimes new types of risks and benefits to look at. You know, people talk about um you know, there's this issue around uh, so-called hallucination, right? These models. It's something that didn't really exist in in certain types of other AI models that were in the past used for chatbots and so forth, right? And so um, the lesson is really to always, when there's a new technology, to be able to evaluate because it may have new types of risks, even though it looks the same to, to the world, like, oh, this is a chatbot or, you know, but it now has different potential risks than a rule-based uh, one that may have been done just a couple of years ago. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that leads perfectly into the last question. So with the boom of AI in 2023 that we've seen so far, uh, what do you both think the future of AI and healthcare looks like? Samir, would you like to start? Sure. So looking, at, looking out of the window from a researcher's desk at the world and the impact that AI is having and can have, I'm forever the, uh, the hopeful uh, you know, uh, person who who hopes to see it making a great uh, impact, uh, reducing the uh, the errors that occur in clinical practice, enhancing the efficiencies for the clinicians, uh, so that they can uh, they can provide the best care that that is possible, and it can serve as a meaningful adjunct to the decision making process in the clinical workflow. So, but all of these dreams are driven by by two factors, the R&D engine and the uh, controls that are put in place uh, through any of the policies and uh, and implementation details of the engineering of the AI. So um, I, I look fondly outside. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it too. And Gil, what are you looking forward to? Or what do you expect? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's some things that you can see ahead, right? Um, it, by just looking at what's going on in R&D laboratories and, and so forth. And then there's sometimes things that just kind of, they lead to kind of this uh, exponential jump, right? And I think we are essentially at this kind of moment where um, AI is able to do some things as well as uh, humans in some task areas, right? And that number is growing larger. Um, and at once it 
kind of passes that it grow it continues to grow exponentially whereas you know human capabilities you know through evolution you know it's growing much more slowly right and so i think we'll be really surprised by that exponential growth in capabilities of the ones where it is uh, right now at the level of human uh, level uh, perception in a number of areas um, will be, it will move very quickly um, soon. And so some of these areas, I think, um, will be uh, in the, the generative AI space that we, we've seen. Um, I think we've seen a lot in the text area, but that integration of text, imaging, sound, all of those different modalities is gonna enable uh, uh, new types of medicine to um, be done in a more efficient way than it was in the past. Uh, we're gonna, you know, of course, have to deal with some of the new risks that there are, and that's right. it's gonna be important to have the human in the loop. And, then, and that's another reason why I think in the future, some of the things that we'll see, while it may seem really exciting that, you know, around diagnosis and all that, I think we'll see a lot in the efficiency, things kind of behind the scenes. That's where I think we'll see a lot of the things where you also have a human in the loop, looking at uh at that um and where uh you can we'll see a lot of increases in efficiency that will give physicians caregivers others more time to uh work with the patient and less time uh, taking notes and and doing administrative tasks right that's really exciting and i'm looking forward to seeing how this goes and i would love to touch base with both of you again soon uh, i love hearing your thoughts about this topic uh, so thank you both again for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Sarah. I think I think this was a fantastic opportunity uh, to to talk about this important topic uh, because AI bias in healthcare, uh, like like we just discussed right now, has tremendous promise and also has a fair number amount of risk that needs to be controlled. And uh, and it's good to see that various parts of the government are 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 not only uh, funneling the R&D effort to advance the science, but also applying the necessary policy controls to ensure that, that there is uh, uh, risk mitigation to the best uh, possible. And uh, I have known and worked with Gil for a long time on, on various other committees. And uh, I'm happy to have him uh, with me as a as a collaborator and colleague on the on the show. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Sarah. Samir, it's great to be on with you all uh, again. It's uh, a number of times that we've we've had interactions before, and uh, you know, it's really just I think fascinating to see how much even since our last conversations, right? AI has uh, advanced some things that. Um, you know, maybe we're not uh, as an imaginable of being uh, having such a large impact on a population, um, you know, across the US population potentially uh, is something that we now see, right? It, it is it gone from uh, small pilots to, you know, at the VA, we've got um, looking at, you know, actually using AI in, um, you know, uh, different AI assisted colorectal screening, you know, it's, it's happening in actual locations, you know, Richmond, uh, Albuquerque, Tucson, Hudson Valley, uh, Iron Mountain across the VA. You know, these things are now uh, coming into play and, and helping patients in, in today. Yeah, so it's really sense. exciting. And I appreciate you both. Thank you again. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. HealthCast, along with GovCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform 
And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.